Whether it's a river runs through it or the oxbow incident, the last best place or legends of the fall, why is it that so many of the books that have defined the American West come from the same place? This is Breakfast in Montana. I'm Russell Rowland. And I'm Aaron Parrott. And we're going to spend the next half hour talking about two books from Montana, one from the past and one from the present, in an effort to understand what it is about this magical state that inspires so much incredible writing and so many memorable books. So pour yourself a good strong cup of coffee and spread some huckleberry jam on your toast. And welcome to Breakfast in Montana. Welcome to this episode of Breakfast in Montana. I'm Russell Rowland. I'm Aaron Parrott, and we're talking to you here in the literary city of Missoula, Montana. That's right. During the Book Festival Week. That's right. And the Norman McLean Festival. Lots going on this week. So we're going to talk about two books by women writers, and there's an interesting parallel between them, but first we'll, uh, we'll introduce. So the first one is uh, called Flicker of Old The Dream. Flicker of Old Dreams by Susan Henderson who is a, a writer out of um, Long Island, New York, um, but she does have a Montana tie. Her family homesteaded here near Winnet. So. I got a lot of feelings. <laughs> so um, we were just actually, yesterday we were at our family cemetery. So if you start at Winnet, Winnet is where my father's from and my grandparents are from. And Winnet is a town of about 180 or fewer people. And then if you go towards the breaks from Winnet and then take a left at, at when you get to Mosby, <laughs> the Mosby rest stop, and go for about an hour into the breaks into absolutely nowhere, except at some point you, you pass the 73 Ranch. Mm. Uh, our family cemetery is out there just like in a, in a giant field of rattlesnakes <laughs> wow and it's just your family that's buried there? yeah wow. um it's you know a couple branches of the family but okay. it's um just our family and then one guy who got struck by lightning <laughs> in our cemetery and we just dug a hole for him. <laughs> that's, that's funny and the other book we're going to talk about is also set in in uh eastern montana winter wheat by mildred walker Yes. One of the classic Montana novels. Yeah, it is um, an amazing book. So um, let's start with some of the um, interesting parallels between these two books. So both of them take place in wheat country. Wheat actually plays a pretty integral role in both stories. The first, um, Susan's book, the um, story opens with a young man who gets buried in a grain elevator which has a long-lasting impact on that community and then of course Mildred's book takes place on a wheat farm it it does and it, was it ever clear exactly where it takes place I thought it was like around Geraldine yeah I think that, she used a fictional she location made up the, too yeah but it they they grew both winter wheat and spring wheat there right yeah so I had the sense that it was like Golden Triangle, maybe, or Probably. somewhere yeah. near Great Falls. I mean, right. she did mention Great Falls. Yeah, and let's talk a little bit about Mildred's past. So she was a Pennsylvania. She was born in Pennsylvania. So both these writers came from the East. Yeah. And she was um, very highly educated, married to a doctor. And she became a professor later in life. Mm-hmm. Wrote a lot of books. 
and also was the the mother of Ripley Shem, who married Richard Hugo. Right. And ended up writing a book about Mildred, too, right? Called Writing for Her Life. Is that right? Yeah. Have you read that? I did read it. Yeah. Um, it's been a few years, probably, when it came out. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, that's where I first... You know, had Mildred Walker on my radar. Oh, really? Okay. I did. I had no idea she wrote so many books. Yeah. And was a writer, like. Right. It wasn't something she did in her spare time. It was, yeah. She was a writer. That was her deal. Yeah. And uh, I just read on Wikipedia that um, she, her first novel, Fireweed, I think it was in 1934, won a big prize, fifteen hundred dollars. Wow! In 34, that's a lot of money. Yeah, I was going to look it up and see what that's worth in today's dollars. Right. But that it's said that that allowed the family to move to Great Falls. Mm. Um, so her husband uh, opened a practice in Great Falls, and they lived he there did, for about he, twenty years. He paid for a housekeeper so she could write. Oh, is that right? Yeah, he was very supportive of her. Career. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So Winter Wheat was actually a National Book Award finalist, wasn't it? Was it Winter Wheat that? She was up for the National Book Award? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. I knew she'd been nominated, but I didn't know what book. So we got a couple of award-winning novels here. Um, Susan's book won the Spur Award. And it's nominated for uh, High Plains Book Award. Right. It's a finalist. Yeah, one of the three finalists for that. Plus, it also won the Willa Cather Award. Mm. Yeah. And I wanted to congratulate you, first of all, on winning the Spur. Thank you. Yeah. And you're also a finalist for the High Plains Book Award, which is fabulous. Yes, thank you. Yeah. I'm very humbled. Yeah. I was curious about the Spur, because I think my image of the Spur, and probably most people's, is that it's Westerns, but this is definitely not a Western. So were you kind of surprised by that? I was extremely surprised. (laughs) And in fact, I just went to um, to pick up the award and um, oh. was a, around a bunch of Western writers, and I definitely didn't feel like we were <laughs> talking about the same oh, yeah. things. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I feel like we were writing about the same people. Sure. Um, yeah, that makes sense. We, we knew those hardworking, stoic mm-hmm. um, types, and... Um, yeah, so I sort of just sort of fell into this genre, I guess, on this book. But uh, it felt pretty remarkable to be recognized by people who actually read Westerns and that, that they would consider mine worthy of yeah, that company. Right. Yeah, I think they're changing their view as far as what they consider for their awards now. You know, a lot more yeah. liter- literary type stuff yeah and there were no cowboys in my book right none at all yeah that's right yeah so yeah one of the things that um i thought might be interesting to talk about in this with these two books in particular is the phenomenon of people who tried who adopt montana as their subject for writing you know there's a long history of that um some of them that moved here, you know, Kittredge and who else? Um, almost all of them. Jim, Jim Harrison. Harrison. Right, almost all of them. Um, yeah. Tom McGuane. Yeah. Uh, and then there's there's some that write well, about Montana. Or then there's the you have the opposite phenomenon since it's the Norman McLean Festival. Yeah. The guy who was born and raised here and then yeah. moved away for half a century. Thomas Savage, same deal. Yeah. Yeah, and then there's there's a completely different category of people like um, Nicholas Evans, who is British, I think, wrote uh, Horse Whisperer and 
the loop i think was the other one montana based books and he's actually in a long tradition of of british people who move to montana and write novels about the west does he live here because i know I, I yeah that's yeah, i don't think so I, so that's the point i was kind of trying to get to so i don't know anyone in montana that's read the horse whisperer i'm sure there are, there's a bunch of them but it's not something that comes up in I'll literary go circles i've never read it and i'll go one better i haven't seen the movie yet either. <laughs> the movie was not good at least in my opinion the point is getting the tone and verisimilitude yes of montana right is hard if you haven't lived here i believe i think that's true and you know maybe these two books are a good you know case study of that because Mm -hmm. mildred walker did live here for what'd you say over 20 years yeah um, even though she spent most of her life outside of the state, she did live in that area for 20 years. And Winter Wheat is one of the most believable Montana books I've read. Absolutely, like, yeah. Really nailed the tenor of the people and the landscape and how important, you know, wheat yeah. is on a lot of levels. Right. Whereas I thought the Henderson book just didn't ring true. Yeah. On for lots of reasons. I mean, she's a great writer. The characters were all good, and it was a good story. But I just have a hard time believing basic things like a town that's too small for a gas station would support a funeral parlor. Mm. Yeah. And the way the people interacted did not seem like small-town life to me. Right. Um, I think I have to agree with you. And I, I was very um, disappointed because I wanted to love this book so much. I, I loved Susan's first book, Up From the Blue, is a wonderful novel. And I really do think she's a fantastic writer. But I struggled with a lot of the same issues you did as far as the um, believability of this being a Montana story. Um, so maybe that raises an interesting point to go back to The Horse Whisperer. You know, we're looking at this through local eyes. And yeah. It doesn't ring true for us, but, you know, most people in Alabama or Connecticut who read this aren't, you know, they're not going to know the difference. Well, and even a lot of people in Montana. You know, right, that's um, true. So, you know, it's, it doesn't surprise me at all that it's won awards and that it's a finalist for the High Plains Award, which is judged mostly by Montana people. Right. Uh, because it is that well written. But, yeah, one of the things I I struggled with in particular was the way that uh, the town treated the guy that returned the brother of the young man who died comes back to the town so just to summarize the plot here a little bit yeah um the the book opens with that a teenager who gets killed in a grain elevator accident and he's working alongside his little brother who's about eight or nine years old ten years old yeah and so the brother watches this death and then the community kind of blames him for it Right. And then he ends up leaving for 30 years and comes back when his mom is dying. Right. To take care of her. And the community is so cruel and mean to him. It's. Yeah. It's really, I thought, un- yeah, it, unbelievable. It was hard to fathom that it would be that, they would be that cruel, especially considering how long it had been and also the fact that he had come back for, you know, good reason. Right. Um, and, you know, Susan actually, um, when I interviewed her about this, um, her explanation that made it a little more understandable to me was that she was trying to capture how uh, a small town 
sort of gives in to the loudest voices in the community so that she her what it wasn't her intent for the entire community to be against him it was only a few people and everyone just sort of fell in line with them right which made a little more sense but i didn't i didn't get that when i was reading it i i thought it was you could compare to like your novel the cold country where these people in a small town one day they might be at each other's throats but they all live together and they have to see each other at social engagements and they're at least cordial yeah whereas in this book the people were just so full of animosity for this guy and i couldn't really understand why yeah what did he do that was so bad I, i had a hard time with that too so i feel like we're in a time of like deep entrenched rage and tribalism yeah right (laughs) um so i felt like that why don't i sort of see if i can set that up Uh in the town and and i think one thing that that i think is sort of misunderstood about the book or i did not intend about the book is that i don't think everyone in the town was was at that place of rage but but the loudest people tend to end up sort of speaking for the whole because if if you're Ah. quiet uh, and I tend to be. Uh, so if you have people raging, and let's say it's three people over here and three people over here, yeah, it's all the quiet people that are sort of um, misunderstood to be, you know, part of yeah, part of the noise, and right. not necessarily, but they might not be comfortable moving other people's noise. That's you know? interesting because I was I was curious about that. It yeah. felt like everyone was against this guy. Yeah, but if you look back, it's actually there, there's a there's, few. It's just like three deeply unemployed <laughs> guys. And the main character is a woman, right? So as a little girl, she witnesses all this, and her mother, um, she lost her mother, right, at childbirth, right? Right. So she's never had a mother, right. And she becomes uh, an undertaker. What's the word? Embalmer. Right. At a pretty young age. Right. Working with her dad. Yeah. So that part of it is is pretty fascinating. Yeah. You know the 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 part of her book that I loved the most was the relationship between her and her dad. And, and that that was another nice parallel with Winter Wheat was that the both of these young women that are the main characters in these books have very um, complex and difficult relationships with their parents, um, which is totally in line with small, you know, town. small town Montana. So that was one part she really got. She really nailed that part. And they're both only children. Yeah, exactly. So you have only child daughters. Um, I mean, the main the main uh, conflict in both books is dealing with their parents. Yeah. Um, I guess in Winter Wheat, it's more the mother than the father. Right. Um, but in... The mother who's a Russian immigrant. Yeah, and that's right. a whole other aspect yeah. that's pretty interesting. And how that kind of paralleled, um, you mentioned her earlier, Willa Cather and mm. Antonia. I was mm. There were a lot of great scenes in there. I really loved the way she handled the, the eavesdropping. So the daughter overhears a conversation... Oh, right. That her parents are having. About her mother lying to her father about being pregnant. Right. Yeah. And she misunderstands the whole... Yeah. She misunderstands every part of it. And so the better part of the book, you know, she's wrestling with this. 
And then she finally confronts her mother about it, and her mother's like, oh, no, you, you meant that whole you thing got that wrong. Yeah, and her whole opinion of their marriage was based right. on that conversation. Like, missed, she thought yeah. they didn't love each other. Right. Um, she was, yeah, that, that, that was one of the more fascinating parts of that book, was that her uh, concept of love, uh, based on what she saw in her parents, was that, you know, it's this miserable, you know, that it, in their case, it's this miserable, long, suffering <laughs> right existence, and like it's the last thing she wants, you know. And uh, like they only stayed together for because of her, right? Yeah. And you get a little bit of that with the with the Henderson book in a different way because the mother's out of the picture. But right, one thing in Winter Wheat that really fascinated me was how so much of the book depends on either eavesdropping or people seeing things and misinterpreting what they're seeing. Like mm. when she's at the schoolhouse and the guy stays all night. Oh, yeah, and everyone... And that's... It's so small town to me. Yes. Like, that's exactly... Like, everybody knows your business. And if you talk to anybody who lives in a small town, probably you you would corroborate this, right? Yeah. That one of the disadvantages is that everybody knows everything about everybody. Yeah, so. and if someone... If something like that gets misinterpreted and you're seen as some derelict somehow then it's hard to overcome that right hard to overcome that whereas you know living in a city or even a town there's a certain amount of anonymity or people they're just not in each other's business that yeah well and susan did capture that too in uh flicker of old dreams with uh when the the main character does develop an attraction to this guy who's come back and She's completely paralyzed as far as acting on it because she knows that everyone's going to look down on her if she gets involved with this guy. So, um, Well, that's true, and that, that part I thought was great, except mm-hmm. I found it totally unbelievable that the town wouldn't figure it out. Right, especially her dad. Because <laughs> right, yeah. yeah, her dad, she kept telling her dad that she was seeing somebody, and he's like, oh, well, who is it now? <laughs> who can it be among the 12 men in this town? <laughs> I was thinking, what if you were born in Winnet and you didn't want to be a rancher and you you had these other dreams and you were just kind of lazy about like physical labor mm-hmm. and stuff. And what if you were that person? What if you were an academic or an artist or um, some kind of other? Mm-hmm. What if you were an other? And I thought, what would that feel like to be in a community that had a very, very, very strong identity that they were so proud of and it was so kind of hardwired into them mm-hmm. and you were this other um and and i felt like that would start to get at that tension that we're feeling politically that i didn't want to write about politics where um you know maybe one side um f- feels threatened by change and and the the changes of um the world and and the industries and another person is like oh please can can change come faster yeah and so i just wanted to set those two Mm. people at odds i guess Mm -hmm. so the the romance between them takes a long time yeah (laughs) i don't have a romantic book (laughs) in my body so oh really (laughs) yeah oh that's funny so so that was um that's it that's as mushy as i could i could go yeah well and of course mary's conflicted yeah she's So the the part that I loved 
about winter wheat and this to me was like where she really showed her connection to the Montana mentality was when someone dies and the main character keeps it to herself <laughs> for like two days she doesn't tell her parents and they're they're they know that they she got this letter and so this is her suitor her boyfriend yeah, her old boyfriend he's gone to war killed in the war and she gets this letter and they assume it's from him so they keep asking well how's <laughs> so and so doing, doing? <laughs> and she just totally withdraws yeah and doesn't reveal it until and so that what's great about the novel is that those two themes converge and then that's how yeah, it's revealed the, exactly the true love of her parents because her parents actually met during the previous war right. world war one where right. her father was in russia mm-hmm. yeah so i guess what i loved about winter wheat is it's a novel in that old 19th century early 20th century sense of you got a collection of characters and a really well articulated plot and everything kind of works together and converges and yeah all like comes it's together crafted you know and not a lot of novels nowadays are like that yeah and then and then as far as the um resolution for susan's book um this was interesting too and this was um something i didn't get when i wrote it but or read it but she um explained later was that the um romance between the two main characters she really didn't see it as a romance and i thought this was fascinating so she saw it more as a this guy who had been living in i think seattle was it um all the, the whole time that he was gone gave the the main character the idea and the belief that she could leave and so she does she leaves eventually and of course we're given the ending away but i like that about it like it wasn't she didn't leave because of him she left because he gave her that belief that she could and you know wasn't forever stuck in this place no that's true and, and it really well, then clarified her relationship with her father too because yeah. she was able to leave him right and that was a that was a really intense part of the book very you yeah. know she, it's it's not like her and her father really got along very well right she couldn't bring herself to yeah they, there was that connection. It was codependent, right? <laughs> Plus, he was—he drank, oh, so yeah. you know she needed to be there to make sure things got taken care of. So that was another interesting element. I was curious about how much of the pressure um, to not give in to that—that that, how much of it you saw as internal and how much of it was the external, like not wanting to be seen. Mm-hmm. In terms of? The romance. Yeah. I feel like um, more than romance, it was um, he tapped into something in her that she had dialed way down. Ah, um, okay. So her... Um, oh, so it wasn't so much that she was in love with him? No, but it was sort was... of um, the the person that she might have been if she hadn't, ah. um, if she hadn't quieted that that passion down so she might have been an artist or she might have had opinions or she might have and I feel like she over time uh, just sort of pushed her wants down and just kind of made do and um, put up and um, and so I feel like he was more this 
this outside force that woke something in her that used to live. So what did you learn about Montana and about yourself with this book? Um... So in New York, people like, people refer to me as a workhorse all the time. Oh, really? And then you <laughs> go to a hotel like Winnet, and you just feel like yeah, a the, wimp. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just lazy. I don't have the mental toughness. Yeah. I I found that. So while I was there, I found almost every weekend I would drive to Lewistown just to like see some color like I I used to pace in the produce section at the grocery store at Albertsons (laughs) because I just I just wanted to see color I wanted to smell uh, flowers Um, I wanted to see people I wanted to hear noise and I felt like how loud the wind was Mm, yeah and when you're driving I feel like the, the toughest thing about this part of Montana is if you have any loose screw in your head, if you have mm. if you have any kind of self talk, uh, you start to hear it because there's yeah. nothing there's nothing to distract it. Right. So um, I felt like you're sort of sitting there with with the whole of yourself, and that's sometimes not an easy place to sit. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like the people that I met. Um, I come from a long line of like academics. Everybody's got the PhD in my family, and the except for me. Um, <laughs> and I felt like they knew as much or more. It, it's it, it's measured in a different way. It's not necessarily an academic thing, but the amount of knowledge from the people that I met just how to put something together. You know how many things people could do for themselves in very in a lot of areas from getting your car out of gumbo well mm. okay nobody drives a car out there <laughs> getting, your, getting your very large truck yeah. out of gumbo um <laughs> being able to turn a calf that it hasn't ah. been birthed yet mm-hmm. um just the the mental toughness of um seeing an animal in pain mm. um like i yeah. i had a very narrow perception of education yep. and knowledge mm-hmm. and um and my own like <laughs> my big toughness and my workhorseness yeah yeah and stuff so i felt like a lot of it was just um the way i hear people talk about people from small towns yeah. and um from a low education level in terms of like grades or degrees mm-hmm. it's a real big wake-up call when you actually just meet yeah, and, and, and in the end, we all want those same things yeah. in life, which is, you know, you want you want some sort of comfort. You want to know your kids are okay. You want mm-hmm. someone to love you. So there was, you know, there was so much about the, that book that was so good, and I, I just wanted to like it so much more. Well, I, um, I think it would be fair to say that, you know, this is the chauvinism of two guys from Montana who are like, know <laughs> right. how people behave, but I think... You know, the larger sense of the novel being read by people all over the country. Mm -hmm. Nobody's going to... Yeah, most readers aren't going to get that. um, And it also raises the issue of, you know, really, is it Montana that's in these novels or a certain part of Montana? Like, I don't think of Winter Wheat as, like, representative of Montana as a whole, but 
Right. You know, kind of that Great Falls area. So, the, you know, this is a big state. Yeah. Or any, small towns are way different. farming from, community. Yeah. Yeah, kinda, for sure. Yeah, but yeah, it wouldn't it wouldn't uh, resonate so much with people in uh, logging towns or in the same way that a river runs through it. You know, how much does that resonate with people from Ekalaka? Mm, right. Or Billings? Right, right. That's true. Yeah, it is an interesting aspect of of you know how do you determine a Montana novel? How, how, what? Well, in this case, it's easy because they both take place in Montana. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> so yeah, we would uh, really highly recommend Winter Wheat, and definitely also recommend that you read Flicker of Old Dreams as a a wonderful story. Try to put your prejudices aside about <laughs> <laughs> small town Montana. Yeah, but they're both just really well written books. Susan Henderson, author of Flicker of Old Dreams, and uh, Mildred Walker, Winter Wheat. And thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. Thanks again for joining us for Breakfast in Montana. Breakfast in Montana is written and produced by Aaron Parrott and Russell Rowland. The music is written and performed by Aaron Parrott. Breakfast in Montana would like to thank the Drum Lemon Institute and Montana Arts Council for their generous support. Join us again next time.